Welcome to the Legacy Nashville podcast. We are so grateful that you've taken the time out of your day or night to tune in. We pray that this message encourages you to love God, love people, and change the world. Now, let's get to the message. And so today I want to teach. So I'm just going to teach. I want to run through a whole bunch of stuff that I know will be helpful. And throughout the teaching this morning, I'm going to be going through proposing a series of questions. Those are the really key things I want you to write down. And then if you want to take it to another level, go before the Lord in the next few weeks and ask the Lord these questions and see what the Holy Spirit reveals to you. So we're going to go through a series of questions throughout the teaching. And at the very end, I have another series of questions. And then if you want to go to the next level, take a picture of your notes and tag me on Instagram because I love to see what you all write down for two reasons. To make sure you heard what I meant to say. And secondly, I love to hear what you actually hear. And so, are you guys ready? Okay. The title of the message today is The Next Reformation. The Next Reformation. Lyle and I were talking earlier this week. And how many just love Lyle and Allison, your leaders here? You know, we, we, we know each other a little bit. We've done a couple gatherings with a lot of people. And when Lyle asked us to come, I said, I'm going to come. I definitely want to teach and talk, but I just really want to spend some time with these guys and really looking forward to that. And so happy birthday, Allison. I'm glad we could be here for your birthday. Yes, I, I think Lyle planned it out or something. So, all right, the next Reformation. The reason why Reformation is so important to me, because I believe this Reformation is about the body of Christ being like Jesus inside culture. It's about you and me, a Jesus follower, being set apart to God and going into the world. So the idea of revival, transformation, and reformation. Now, these words are interchangeable. We use these words interchangeably back home at my former church. None of you got that, but that's okay. (laughs) Revival, the definition of revival is what would dead would now made alive again. It's my favorite definition because it could refer to your marriage, your your own soul. It can refer to your business, your children, your relationship. So whatever would dead has now been made alive again. That's when you know revival has touched something. It has been revived. Now, transformation is when revival goes to the next space, and transformation is when it begins to transform you from the inside out. Now, this word is interchangeable. A lot of people use transformation in the context of transforming a city. And these were, again, these words aren't doctrine. They're just easy words for us to grab a hold of or hold on to. So when we've been revived, we become transformed. We get changed from the inside out. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to remodel all of us, not just parts of us, but all of us. And if you don't let him remodel every room, he will spend the rest of your life making it an absolute, being a nuisance to you to let you into those spaces. So if you're wondering why you haven't been transformed, there's a possibility you've not allowed him to. So the idea of the Holy Spirit isn't just to rest on you so you're powerful and anointed, but it's actually to make you look more like Jesus, which takes a lot of remodeling and demo. So that's transformation. But once you're transformed, all of a sudden you begin to recognize everything in you is very different than the world that you actually live within. And this is where you become a reformer. This is where you begin to realize, oh, this broken world that I live in needs what I have inside of me. Now, here's the key. You don't graduate from revival to transformation, and you don't graduate from transformation to reformation. Every time I've seen anybody move into reformation and forget about revival or forget about transformation, they usually get swallowed up in culture. 
So the idea isn't graduation. This isn't like congratulations, you made it to reformer or reformation. No, it's a cyclical thing. It's something, it always stays with you. So daily we're being revived, daily we're being transformed, and then daily we're looking for ways to reform the world that God has trusted us with. So that's the framework that I'm working from this morning. I'm not saying we graduated from encounters with God and we graduated from deep stuff through doing it all that. that. That should be our model the rest of our life. But I want to talk about the third portion, and that is reformation. Mike Bickle says something recently. He taught it back at, he'd been teaching it for a year, but he was at Bethel a few years back. And he called this thing triune love. And what he does, he describes the love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he called it triune love. And he said, the love that is being displayed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and between the three of them, wasn't meant to be observed by us. It was meant to be experienced by us. So it wasn't meant to be something that we see the triune love taking place, and you and I stand there and marvel at it and even tell people about it. No, we were actually designed to be within it and experience the love of God. And that is what is referred to as agape love. So this is the framework I'm working from this morning. I have talked a lot about this in years past. Like I said, 15 to 18 years ago. I talk a lot about how to engage with culture. For those of you that would like to listen to it, you can go to an old message. It's actually five, six years old. It's on October 11, 2015, called Fundamentals for Engaging with Culture. And if you, ever, if you want to geek out a little bit more with me, you can go find that out on the Bethel podcast and stores and all that. But that message deals practical of how to actually engage with culture, how to do life outside of the four walls of the church, and how to actually view humanity through the lens of God. So that's a whole other topic. Today, I want to talk about the next Reformation. And we're going to approach from a historical, and we're going to actually pull some, extrapolate some insights out of a lot of historical stuff, which will lead us into today's message. But first off, Let's define the word reformation. It is the action or process of reforming an institution or practice. I'll read that again. The action or process of reforming an institution or practice. The second definition is a 16th century movement for the reform of the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church, ending in the establishment of the Reformed and Protestant churches. So how does reformation actually come about is a question we have to ask ourselves. It is when one is confronted with a problem, usually stemming from a system that is too powerful or too rigid and has no room for adjustment. When a system is this way and an idea challenges the very system itself, this is the moment when reformation will begin knocking on the door. The question is, will the door be pulled open or will it be pushed open from the outside? But that's when Reformation takes place. I want to give a few highlights of the first Reformation, which again, which in the 16th century, for some context and understanding of our reference point. The Reformation we refer to as a political, religious, and cultural movement in Europe that began in the 1500s and lasted roughly for about 150 years. It ended when a treaty was signed to end the Thirty Years' War. They say the Thirty Years' War alone cost Germany 40% of its population. So the Reformation we always glorify and adore back in, back in the 1500s, 16th century, came at a great, great price. Some of the key ideas that fueled this Reformation, the first one, which a call to purify the church 
and a belief that the Bible, not tradition, should be the sole source of spiritual authority. The spark that started this flame was October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the castle in Wittenberg, Germany. This would be the equivalent of a 16th century Facebook post. That's essentially what he did, and it went viral. He, he had no idea what those 95 Theses were actually going to do. It was just his thing, and all of a sudden, it took over the world literally in that moment. Eventually, the 95 Theses were printed, and it went out all over Europe. The 95 Theses challenged the authority of the Catholic Church, not lightly, but quite aggressively. If you want to geek out, you can go read them, go Google it. Google it. It's pretty interesting. The idea of coming against the Catholic Church is actually quite foreign to us us in a postmodern era. Because in a postmodern era, there had been a complete um, dismantling of any large power that controls the way of life. This is why day and age, this day and age in America, we're rebutting all the political system. This is why Black Lives Matter become a big deal. Because anything that is overarching and too powerful, we don't put up with that in a postmodern era. So it's hard for us to stand the gravity of what it took to put 95 theses on the door of a castle because he was going against the superpower of the day that controlled all thought, all reason, and the existence of what it actually means to be a human being. So talk about courage and guts to write down 95 ways that this institution is abusing its place and put it on the door. It's hard for us in the postmodern era to grasp the gravity of what was taking place and what took place. Now, in the previous century, before the Reformation, one of the greatest inventions ever known to man was the Gutenberg printing press. Now, he didn't, he didn't create or invent the printing press. He actually took it and made it much better, if I can just simply put it that way, so that it could be used in mass. Now, what's fascinating about this, this, and along with the literacy rate, so you have the Gutenberg printing press, and then you have the literacy rate begin to increase. Many say the printing press actually increased the literacy rate because up until that point, you didn't have mass production in literature. So when the Gutenberg printing press came into place, they began to mass produce literature, and that increased the literacy rate. You can do a pretty fun study on the printing press. They say it actually established the middle class. Before, there was the elite, and then there was the incredibly poor. And the printing press actually created a middle class in Europe at this time. So when that came along, it actually, one of the first earlier mass-produced pieces of literature was the newly translated German Bible. It was translated from its original language into the German language, and then it was mass-produced. What's fascinating is the first Reformation put the Word of God in people's hands. I believe this Reformation is going to put the Word of God in people's hearts. Luther and other reformers became the first to skillfully use the power of the printing press to give their ideas a wide audience. No reformer was more adept than Martin Luther at using the power of the press to spread his ideas. Between, check this out, between 1518 and 1525, so just a handful of years, Luther published more works than the next 17 most prolific reformers combined. So he utilized a modern-day technology to get his ideas widespread. Now, what will we be named? Those that follow Luther would be known as Protestants. This is derived from the word protest, as they protested or they were protesters. 
So my question is, I wonder what name we will be named as a result of this reformation. Now, here's some other notable Reformation highlights. In 1520, in the piece of literature called The Christian Nobility of the German Nation, Luther outlined the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers and denied the authority of the Pope to interpret or confirm interpretation of the Bible. Again, it's hard for us to grasp doing this in a postmodern era. So the gravity of what he did was phenomenal. Now, the first Reformation was great division and fracturing within the church. It was actually really painful. What if the second Reformation is the opposite? It's one where the body of Christ comes together and actually functions as a body. In 1522, are you guys still with me? I told you, we're teaching today. This is no preach. This is no, just heartfelt. Actually, it is heartfelt, but it's coming out in a lecture. But I'm okay with that. You guys are all adults, and you're hungry to understand the time and season that we live in. In 1522, publication of Luther's translation of the New Testament, which allowed the common person to search the scriptures to understand the biblical ground for reformers' criticism of the papacy. Now, why was this a big deal? Because prior to the printing press and prior to the literacy rate going up, the only way to understand the Bible was through the pope or its pastoral or its leadership of the Catholic Church. So however they interpreted it is how you learn. And so when it got put into the hand of people, people then could come directly before the Lord and go, actually, I view it differently. Wow. And so this is why this was a big deal to actually put the Bible into the hands of people along with the literacy rate. So the New Testament was published in 1522, and then the Old Testament translation came in 1534. It's also important to note that this Reformation we talk about actually created other smaller Reformation. In England, the Reformation began. This is actually funny. This, this is just a funny one I thought was so interesting. In England, the Reformation began with Henry VIII's quest for a male heir. When Pope Clement VII refused to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon so he could remarry. So the king wanted to remarry, but the Pope wouldn't let him. And he didn't like that. It's king. So the English king declared in 1534 that he alone should be the final authority to matters relating to the English church. So Henry dissolved all the English monastery to confiscate their wealth and work to place the Bible in the hands of the people. Beginning in 1536, every parish was required to have a copy. So he wanted to remarry, so he got rid of the pope. He said, I get to do whatever I want. Now, this is what's interesting. If you, study, if you study history in this, you'll notice that a lot of countries, even to this day, but especially in ancient days, the king and queen were the head of the church and the state. And so this is where a lot of this stuff is manifesting. If you've never been to Europe, get a chance to go to Europe. Go to some of the epic cities in Europe, and you'll start to notice the, how massive and influential the Edict of Milan which that's a whole other study, as well as the Reformation, how it actually shaped the existential Actually, everything of why we exist. Best for another time. Another interesting note, in 1633, so this is toward the end of the First Reformation, Galileo would declare a heretic for supporting the scientific theories of Copernicus. His ideas were eventually embraced as the correct theory, eventually, which was the earth revolves around the sun. The church put his writing on the forbidden to read list, his final word before he was killed was, the earth still moves. Wow. So Galileo 
went against the system of thought that the earth, everything in the solar system revolved around the earth. He said, no, everything revolved around the sun. And he eventually got killed for it. All of his writing were put on a list that you can't read. But here's the funny part. It, a museum in Florence, Italy, had the display of Galileo's middle finger. <laughs> Looks like we know how he feels. Okay, I'm going to shift gears here. Referring back to the idea of being Jesus in culture, it involves something more than a reformation of ideas and system, but it also means to walk in power like Jesus. This next reformation is and will be recapturing this across the whole body of Christ. When you study the reformation, which I just gave you a very top overview, very quick overview. When you study the reformation, there are some things that are not mentioned. But I feel it is very important we take a look at. In order for the gospel to go forth and bear fruit, we must realize there was another significant issue, and in my words, an absolute tragedy brewing in the back room of the first Reformation. Some things were lost in the Reformation that must be recaptured in this next Reformation. It's the power of God. The Catholic Church, prior to the Reformation, saw a power shift from the laity to the clergy. What does that mean? That before this era, the people in the church, the common person was empowered to walk in gifts and signs and wonders and power, but there was a power shift where they no longer allowed that and all went to clergy. So much so that if someone that wasn't clergy operated in any form of power, they were instantly labeled a witch. Now, Stoke your memory a little bit. How many have watched a medieval movie of some castle and anybody that walked in power, who were they, what character do they play in that movie? That's why, because of the major power shift within the Catholic Church. So if you were not clergy, you were instantly labeled a witch. It makes you wonder how many people in that era, that's a whole other conversation we'll save for another time. So, and there was also a move around this time, they were to move away from what's called a warfare worldview to what's called a blueprint worldview. This is why I want you to write notes down. What is a warfare worldview? As a believer, a warfare, if you have a warfare worldview, try saying that 10 times really fast. It's really complicated. But when you have a warfare worldview, as a believer, you are fighting against the enemy. You're fighting against sickness, the devil, the demonic power, spiritual forces you can't see. So our life is at war. We're fighting against something. When we see sickness, when we see a problem in society, we go, we are fighting against the enemy's place in this space right here. That's a warfare worldview. So around this time, it shifted from a warfare worldview over to what is called a blueprint worldview. And the idea behind that is what Whatever happens in our personal life, whatever happens in our life, it's actually God's design. So talk about a major shift from we're actually go, we're conquering ground to everything was God's design. So if you were sick, that was God's purpose for your life. This societal issue, oh, that was God, that was his blueprint. So talk about a major shift in worldview, and this was taking place around this era. So... Onto the scene stepped John Calvin and Martin Luther. They were confronted with what they said were abuses of power of the Roman Catholicism. And they were also confronted with Roman Catholic belief that when healing the miracles were present, it authenticated their doctrines and beliefs. So, 
Imagine not being in the Catholic Church and you have a major issue with the abuses and the theology and the doctrine and the teaching of the Catholic Church. And you hear them saying, it's true because we have miracles, which is actually kind of intriguing. The Catholic Church it actually has a history in miracles. But when they realized they're saying that their miracles and healing authenticated their doctrine and teaching, John Calvin and Martin Luther had major, major issues with that. So they were left with a, a, they were in a quandary of sorts. Since they had major qualms with teachings and doctrines in the Catholic Church, this left them no choice but to look for ways to dismantle it. So we have already briefly looked at what Martin Luther did. Let's take a quick look at what John Calvin did. As Calvin wrestled with the Catholic belief that healing and miracles authenticated the doctrines and beliefs, since he had significant disagreement to their teaching and doctrine, he developed what is called cessationism. Not sensationism, but cessationism. So today I won't be arguing or debating this topic, but rather just bringing it to our attention for the purpose of where we are going. Although, please note, I 100% disagree with cessationism. 100% disagree with it. Some of you are like, what is that? This is what cessationism is. It is the belief that the spiritual gifts died when the apostles died. It's that belief. Although, it was evident. Honestly, the argument behind cessationism is incredibly weak. If you actually dive into it, you'll actually find it has some strong point, but in the end, the entire thing collapses. Although, it was evident that non-apostles in the Bible actually walked in the spiritual gift. Remember, the idea that the spiritual gift died when the apostles died, well, non-apostles walked in the actual spiritual gifts. Are you following me? And it was still happening. In other words, the the spiritual gift was still happening all the way up until about 300 A.D. So the whole idea of cessationism, again, I told you I wasn't going to debate that, and I have already begun the debate. (laughs) That's for another time. The explanation for continuing after the apostle died. So again, the spiritual gifts continued after the apostle died. So this is the explanation that John Calvin came up with, was that healing the miracles were to help establish the church. But once the church was established, it was no longer needed. Calvin did believe that wherever the church was not established and healing the miracles would be present to establish it, but once it was established, the healing the miracles would cease. My question is, why throw away the very key that got you there? You guys still with me? Okay, you're doing good. I'm impressed. Both Calvin and Luther embraced sickness as a way to enter into the sufferings of Jesus. They both believed that when you were sick, it was, it was how you could relate, if you will, and actually walk the same path as suffering like Jesus did. So when you couple that with a blueprint worldview, which is God's design, and with the ending of the spiritual gift, which is cessationism, you essentially kill any notion that healing it to be normative. This is one of the tragedies of the First Reformation. And this proved to be costly, so much so that even many centuries later, there is still a massive debate within the church around the spiritual gifts. Although, I will add, in the last 10 to 20 years, we're seeing a major resurrection across all streams in the body of Christ. 
Now, we're not done, but I want to tell you something. The reason why I want to talk about that, and I understand this church specifically, for the, from, from what I'm aware of, it had, it's all about what we're talking about. But this is why we're fighting for this. Do you understand that this was lost a long time ago? And this is why we're fighting. It's not, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish and make, you know, at the expense of another point to make a greater point. I love when people are getting healed and miracles and spiritual. I love that. And I don't want to diminish that. That is the beauty of God. But I also want to say there's another reason why we're doing this because the, the church is only using half of its resources. So. This is why we need to fight for this. It's important to note that when you react to a problem, you usually create a more significant problem. So John Calvin had an issue with the Catholic Church, and in his attempt to dismantle the church, he not only dismantled the Catholic Church or put a dent in it, he actually took one of the most important things, what it means to a believer and to walk like Jesus, he completely dismantled that, and he created what I think is one of the most Largest atrocities in the Christian walk is the spiritual gifts. So remember, whenever you have a problem with something, don't react to that because you will create another problem. That's actually a principle across all spectrums of life. So now, let's take a look. Let's take a quick journey through healing in the church throughout the centuries. We're going to keep geeking out here. I will explain at the end why this is important for this Reformation. We've already loosely covered two streams, and that was the early church, the apostolic, which was Jesus and the apostles and up to 300 A.D. If you do some studies, you can find out some really cool resources. The church walked in so much power. It was ridiculous. An old uh, North African apologist, Tertullian, it's an old, I forget what century he wrote this, but he said there's so much old literature around, and the phrases were, Christians are everywhere. The fervency of the early church was just unreal. They were in the market. They were in the field. They were in home. They were everywhere. So if the early church or the apostolic church from Jesus to 300 AD is what's considered a stream, I think it's the source of all streams of healing. Then the second phase was Roman Catholic and Orthodox stream, which we've loosely covered that. Now we're going to move into some of the other ones. There's actually a book that you can get this from. If you, for those of you that want, again, I'm, gonna, I'm speaking to geeks this morning. There's a book called um, The Healing Streams by Randy Clark. I would encourage you to get it. It's a phenomenal book. It's actually a great history book on healing streams. And this is where a lot of this information is pulled from. So after the early church, the apostolic church, you have the Roman Catholic and Orthodox streamed in regards to healing. And we've covered some of that loosely. The third one in line, if you will, is the Anglican and Episcopal church streams. Now, in the Anglican and Episcopal, they embrace the blueprint worldview. What's the blueprint worldview? It's the idea that this is God's design, that I am sick, I have a disease, or you are sick, you have a disease, because that's what God wanted. So that was the belief of the Anglican and Episcopal stream. They actually had a book called the Book of Common Prayer. I've read some of it. It's actually quite, some of you have heard of it. It's actually a fascinating read. What you read it, and every prayer was, was tailor-made for a situation. So in other words, if you were a priest and you went to someone's home that was dying of a disease, but they have not met Jesus yet, there was a certain prayer that you would pray. 
If you go to another person that was sick but has met Jesus, then you had a certain prayer. And then there are prayers for different kinds of sicknesses and different kinds of scenarios. So it was almost like you figure it was an algorithm, it was a book of algorithms on certain prayers for certain scenarios. So that was one of the contributions that the Anglican Episcopal stream offered to the body of Christ was that. The third one, or the uh, fourth one, I should say, is the faith cure and the word of faith streams. Now, this one is still pretty strong, especially in this part of the country and even more in the Deep South. I don't know, is it called the Deep South? Yeah, so, so. Some of you say yes, no. Okay, we'll just say South. That's safest. I just know down in Texas and Oklahoma and that area, word of faith is a, it's, it's life. So this is what word of faith and faith cure offered to the body of Christ. They had an emphasis on understanding the promises of Scripture regarding healing and believing those promises and confessing them until they manifest. Kenneth Hagin was a father in the Word of Faith healing movement. And the idea was, if you know anything about him and Copeland and all those guys, they would repeat Scripture no matter what until it happened. That's their contribution, one of their contribution to the healing stream. What I want you to see is we lost healing in the body of Christ, but if you follow the century, it's actually being recaptured. And I believe this generation had one of the most important roles to see it go to the next generation. So that's why we're talking about this. And then how the gift of healing, the anointing for healing, and the healing evangelist would enter into the movement later. So that was one of the things the word of faith and the faith cure movement brought. Is there actually the anointing for healing, the, uh, the gift of healing, and then a healing evangelist. So someone that was, and you can go to tents and revival meetings, and there'll be a healing evangelist. That was something that this dream offered and brought to the body of Christ. However, the word of faith and faith care movement had a very negative view of medicine. And some of you are from Word of Faith, and you're like, oh, yeah, they, they were so anti-opposed to doctors and medicine. And that was one of the trademarks, if you will, of this stream. Now let's go to the next stream. Are you guys still with me? Yeah. I got you wide-eyed. This is good. The classical Pentecostal streams. So in this stream, the emergence of the idea that you can get healed not just by your own faith, but by someone else's faith. So this is why Pentecostal meetings, someone would have faith. You may not have faith for your healing, but you could go to a meeting and someone there would have faith for your own healing. This is one of the contributions that the Pentecostal stream brought to the body of Christ. And sometimes we go to church for that very reason. Like, I don't even know if God can show up, but I know other people believe that can. And that's one of the contributions that it made. Another contribution is in the earlier part of the Pentecostal stream is you needed to confess all your sins and have faith to be healed. So if you didn't get healed, what did you hear? You haven't confessed all your sins or you don't have enough faith. That would that would a trademark of the Pentecostal stream. Now, I want you to write two dates down, 1947 and 1948. 1947 is what's called the Latter Rain Movement. And its focus was on the local church and restoring the fivefold to the local church, to the laity, to people that aren't in leadership of a church, but to the common person, which is every one of us in this room. So the 1947 Latter Rain Movement emphasized how do we train and equip the whole church to walk in the fivefold, the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. And again, that's for another time as well. 
But that's one of the things that the 1947 Lateran movement contributed. Now, the 1948 healing revival, its focus was on the anointed man of God and the Crusades. So the Pentecostal stream brought the, the equipping of the church as well as the anointed man of God, the man of the hour, the power, and et cetera. Some of you remember the old radio. If you're unfamiliar with this, you can look up some old, uh, old um, healing clips, and it was very radio broadcast sounding and feeling. But that one of the things that contributed to the church was there was an anointed man or woman of God. Women were very few, but they were there. But anointed person of God that you would go to a crusade or a tent meeting. Okay, now we're going to move on to the last and final one, which is happening in our present day. This is called the third wave stream. This is, you and I are part of this, whether you want it to be or not, you're a part of it. This is the emphasis where they equip the saint to do the work of the ministry. John Wimber was one of the most crucial players in the earlier part of the third wave stream. Now today, you don't, you can throw a stone one direction and you can find another person that had taken up the mantle or the cause of the third wave stream. The emphasis is less on the individual and it's more on the body of Christ to walk in the gift of healing when confronted for the need of healing. So why is this different than the previous streams? Usually in the previous streams, you came to a building, a tent, or a space where the man of God or healing was taking place in a church. The third wave stream left the church and began to emphasize that when you're confronted with a need for healing or a problem, the gift of healing would come upon you and you could administer healing in that moment. This was very different than the previous stream. This is why modern day church, like get out on the street, go pray for people on the street. It come, that comes out of, that was the emphasis that came out of the third wave stream is that when you're confronted with a need for healing, the gift of healing would become activated and you can initiate healing in that moment. Are you following me? Okay. So actually, in many ways, encouraged leaving the four walls of the church. Now, the vineyard, which was John Wimber founded the vineyard, is it, they embraced all the gifts, signs, and wonders, but were not required to believe that speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of the baptisms of the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand there's probably a number of you in this room. This is all brand new information, and this is the risk that I run in doing a teaching like this because some of you are brand new to the Lord. And I just want to say this. Don't be overwhelmed. You have great leadership here, and they can walk you through it. But my job today is to give you a, a smorgasbord, if you will, and appeal to you to recognize we live in a crucial moment in the church right now. We live in a very important moment, and we can't, we, we have to hold the banner up. We have to hold the banner up of the power of God. We, ha we can't let that down. And so again, this, okay, I had to disclaim myself for a second here. Okay, I'm bringing our attention to these streams because any reformation absent of the power of God is in danger of becoming a man-made reformation. Let me say this again. I'm bringing our attention to these streams. Because any reformation that is absent of the power of God, the raw power of God, has the potential to become just a man-made reformation. This next reformation will be a marriage of the power of God along with the wisdom of God. 
This is what we are moving toward. I didn't touch on the wisdom of God at all today. And if you are intrigued by that, I actually spoke a recent message, I think three Sundays ago, called The Genius of God. You can go on the podcast and get it. But I emphasize and talk about the intelligent, the genius, and the wisdom part of God. And so this reformation isn't just about the power. It's also about realizing that we are called to be intelligent and genius, just like Jesus was. So go listen to that one. That's for that's just a, a complimentary message to this one. So it is this idea that we must be deeply moved by to see the demonstration of God in wisdom and power. My heart is may what was lost in the first reformation would be recaptured in this reformation. This reformation isn't just about reforming an institution or system. It is also, write this down, reforming our practices and how we do life. If 2020 taught us anything, it's an opportunity to take a deep look into ourselves and assess. I wonder if this reformation is about the unity of the church around the cross with the value system of agree to disagree, but to agree to gather around the name of Jesus. And can we turn our attention to a gap between our buildings and touching cities? What if we undo the centuries of the Edict of Milan, where it became not about who came into the church building, and we thought like leaven in the lump of dough, instead of thinking we are the dough? Now, my prayer is I pray this next reformation is a fusion, not a fission. It's a fusion, not a fission. Let me read this to you. This is from uh, the University of Duke. Duke University. Both fission and fusion are nuclear reactions that produce energy, but the applications are not the same. Fission is a splitting of heavy, unstable nucleus into two lighter nuclei, and the fusion is the process where two light nuclei combine together, releasing vast amounts of energy. Fission is used in nuclear power reactors since it can be controlled. So nuclear bombs, all of that is a fission. While fusion is not utilized to produce power since the reaction is not easily controlled and is expensive to create the needed conditions for a fusion reaction. I think this is prophetic of where we are at the church right now. Research continues into ways to better harness the power of fusion, but research is in its experimental stages. Do you understand that the body of Christ is working hard to become one? It's in its experimental stages. And there's a lot more experiments coming in the days and years ahead of how do we actually run alongside someone that has a drastically different theology than I do. If you think as a fission, you bring division. And the first reformation did that. I wonder this next reformation, at least this is my prayer, that it's a fusion, that we find a way to harness the power from both sides or from multiple sides. It's expensive, as it said, It's expensive, and it's experimental. But while different, the two processes have an important role in the past, present, and the future of energy creation. So here are some final questions that I want you to think about. Instead of being known for great division and fracturing, what if this reformation was known for the opposite? The last reformation put the word of God into the hands of people, What if this one put it back into the hearts of people? 
Just like the last one, it was the call to purify the church. What of this one is to purify our, purify our hearts and our lives? What if this one is about rediscovering the characteristics of the early church? Prayer, eating together, fellowship, study together, and walked in power. This is what moved it from a fringe group of radicals to an embraced religion, and it was propelled to the place because of the power that was demonstrated. A couple more questions. What action will we eventually be named by? What technological advancement will this reformation utilize? Will this reformation bring the church to a place where healing is normative and that the spiritual gifts are fully unleashed? I'm going to read you a passage of scripture and then we're going to close. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15. We're going to read through verse 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Legacy, it's about the whole earth. It's about Jesus being actualized, experienced, and expressed by us to the whole earth. The gifts of the Spirit are to that end. Let me end with a few quotes from a man named Clark Pinnock who wrote in his book, Flame of Love. The main rationale of the church is to actualize all implications of the baptism of the Spirit. Another quote I love, Jesus is the prototype of the church. And thirdly, but not lastly, the Spirit indwells the church at the perpetual Pentecost. I believe this next reformation is about the body of Christ recapturing and embodying being like Jesus in culture where it draws humanity to the Father. I want you to stand. I want to pray for another generation of reformers. If you felt like you just sat in school, it's because you did. Today I'm speaking to your mind and your spirit is jumping alive. So Father, I pray for legacy as a breeding ground, as a place that produces and creates reformers. And I pray in this room alone, no matter how young or how old we are or how experienced or inexperienced we are or how new we are to you or mature in you. I pray for everyone in this room to recognize this unique responsibility, this unique privilege and moment in humanity where you are wanting to create another reformation that doesn't bring division but actually brings people together. And it actually brings healing and the spiritual gift to be normative in everyday life. And all the other questions. So Father, I pray in this room this morning, something will come alive within us, even if we don't understand what we just heard, and even if it was a lot of information, I pray the spirit within us 
would catalyze something in us that says, yes, I want to be part of this next reformation. I'm going to do my part in seeing reformation take place in my city, in my home, in my neighborhood, and in my nation. Because we all know that America right now needs another reformation. And we actually believe there's one taking place. The question is, who's going to do the reforming? So I pray for the grace of the Lord to be on this house, on Lyle and Allison and the rest of the leadership team, that there would be a culture that would be, continue to be created here to create people that know how to think, to think deeply about life, to think deeply about issues, and to think deeply about culture, and to be willing to engage with the complex things in society today to the end that your name is glorified in everything. So I bless this church. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Legacy Nashville podcast. If you'd like to support the ministry, you can do so at LegacyNashville.org forward slash give. If you're listening on iTunes, log into the store and give us a good rating and review. This helps our podcast reach new people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Until next week, love God, love people, and go change the world.